Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Unpacking the overlooked perspectives and narratives found within sacred texts is important work in today's increasingly religious, diverse societies. Identifying who is marginalized and stories humans hold dear from the past might be able to shine a light on how people here and now can continue to pursue the elusive collective goal of a continually better society. In this episode, the topic of conversation is the Book of Esther in the Hebrew Bible, and my guest is Dr. Erica Chandrika Dunbar. Erica Chandrika Dunbar received her PhD in Biblical Studies in May of 2020 from Drew University. Her dissertation is interdisciplinary and focused on how the discipline of biblical studies is increasingly responsive to social issues, namely sexual trafficking. Dunbar's dissertation, entitled Trafficking Hadassah, an Africana Reading of Collective Trauma, Memory, and Identity in the Book of Esther in the African Diaspora, is a dialogical cultural study of sexual trafficking in the Book of Esther and during the transatlantic slave trade. In this conversation, we discuss her dissertation work, the origins of her interests, biblical study from an intersectional framework, and modern impacts of what is termed biblical horror. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Erica Dunbar onto Classical Ideas, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Erica Dunbar, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. I'm excited about this opportunity to engage. Thank you so much for joining me as well. It's just an honor to have you here with me um, to talk about all of your work. And we're going to have a fabulous conversation about everything that you're working on. Um, first, can you just start off a little bit by introducing yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. My name is Erica Dunbar. As a matter of fact, let me say Erica Chandrika Dunbar because there's another Erica Dunbar in higher education. So <laughs> just to distinguish myself, I am a Hebrew Bible scholar and I graduated from the from Drew University last year, May 2020. Right now, I'm currently serving as the visiting professor of um, Hebrew Bible at Payne Theological Seminary. Fabulous. I want to talk about a little bit about your academic journey, if you will, um, some of the turning points that led you to where you are and how you found your your career, your career path that you're on um, within the biblical studies and Old Testament and Hebrew Bible. So let's talk a little bit about some stepping stones that led you down the path that you have traveled until today. These can be any moments that spring to mind, like moments from youth or undergrad or grad school just any major turning points um, along your path that led you to care about what you care about? So as a youth, I was always interested in biblical narratives. And I'll just point out one particular memory that I have um, that kind of foreshadows my becoming a professor of biblical studies. When I was in a youth in high school, I um, refused to graduate to the next age and grade appropriate class level in my Sunday school. I was just so intrigued by the conversations that uh, my peers and I and the Sunday school teachers had, and I just refused to graduate to that next level <laughs> class. So I went to the Sunday school teacher and I went to the Sunday school superintendent and I said, I just don't want to leave. I don't want to graduate to the next class. What can we do? And they um, afforded me an opportunity to teach to become the assistant teacher of Sunday school. Um, so that's the primary memory that I have of 
in being interested in biblical stories and having conversations around that sto- those stories and how they in- impact persons' lives, journeys, and identities. Um, then I would say in undergrad, I went to the University of Florida. I always hosted um, conversations, you know, at my place with different peers and the conversations weren't limited to the Bible, but mo- most of the conversations that we had um, endeavored to apply biblical principles to our lives. Mm. Um, at that point in my life, I was extremely um, committed to engaging homeless persons and sex workers. Um, for some reason, my spirit was always drawn to theirs, and I just wanted to hear their stories. So as I was walking you know, around Gainesville or riding the bus to and from campus, I would just engage people around their stories. Um, So I had long conversations with um, these homeless and sex workers. um, And I would say that many of my greatest life lessons during that time um, came from those conversations. Um, I knew that I was at the University of Florida for a formal education, but the truth is I learned more from engaging those persons um, that would help me navigate life then from what I was learning in the classroom. Um, So I have vivid memories of, you know, stopping on corners to um, speak with sex workers as they often advertise themselves or waited for business to pick up. Um, And I didn't go in with judgment or with, you know, harsh or condescending conversations, but I was just told them I was curious about their lives and, you know, Um, anything that they were willing to share. And in those conversations, I remember, you know, stories of their life's ups and downs and um, what I would determine as systemic injustices. They wouldn't, of course, describe it in that way, but it was analysis of systems around them that kind of um, led them to that path. And then um, the other part was um, encounters with danger or this impending doom or death and, and encounters with God whom they understood as protecting them in those moments. Mm. Um, so it was in those moments that I realized that there was a God beyond the biblical narratives that mm. I had not yet encountered or experienced and that I had limited perspectives that didn't even ex- like scratch the surface of who God was and how God operated. Um, and so I just kind of was led down this path of self-exploration um, and this own work of who is God in my life and what is God call- calling me to do. Mm. Were these conversations that you're having, first of all, that's very powerful. And thank you for sharing that. Were these conversations that you were having, um, did they inspire you as you were pursuing education beyond undergraduate into postgraduate education, like master's and doctoral programs? Absolutely. So, you know, those types of conversations made me do this introspective journey of what is my life's purpose? You know, what am I to do in life? So when I went to seminary, you know, um, I actually applied because I was just trying to figure out that exact thing. What is my purpose in life? I didn't go to preach. I didn't go to teach. I just wanted to discern what it was that I needed to do in life. I had no clue. Right. Um, But as I um, attended seminary, my first year, my professor of Hebrew Bible was on sabbatical, but I heard so many stories. Oh, you don't want to take Dr. Bailey, you know, you <laughs> ruin your faith. And he asked all of these crazy questions. So I was like, I'm going to wait till next year to take, you know. Absolutely. Um, I would too. That'd be, that'd be my approach. Of course. Like, I was like, this sounds like something that I need to do <laughs> for yeah. myself. So I waited. I didn't take my um, intro. Um, well, I didn't take courses with him I think I ended up taking an intro course with someone else but then the rest of my Old Testament courses were with Dr. Randall Bailey Um, and as he began to ask questions of the text um, that I was like this makes sense to me right Um, he pushed back on things in the text that just didn't feel right to me so I was like wow I think I have an ally who thinks like me who allows me to ask questions and um, develop my own interpretation of the text Um, and that empowered me to kind of speak up more in class um, than I had been doing in other classes so he affirmed critical thinking which gave me the courage to embody the type of boldness that I had in back in Sunday school 
So Randall Bailey is an ideological critic and that interested me for several reasons, um, but he would also like analyze stereotypes and euphemisms, things that were used to justify different behaviors in the text, right? Um, and he also introduced me to a wide range of scholars that treated diverse issues. And he, um, one of the things that really caught my attention was that he pointed out the presence of Africa and African peoples in the Bible, mm. uh, which intrigued me because then I was opened up to like, there are different identities and experiences depicted in the text that we're often taught to not see or engage. Um, and lastly, he taught me the language. So he taught me Hebrew, which opened me up to a whole new world of interpretations and encouraged me to develop my own interpretation. Mm. So for the program, one of the requirements was to do a project. So I chose, I was going to do a um, contextualized reading of the book of Esther. As I'm implanted there in Atlanta at ITC, um, started doing research about sex trafficking in the area. And that particular zip code was one of the, had one of the highest occurrences in the nation. So I was like, wow, I wonder how people who live in this area understand this text. Mm. Um, so I, I began to read the text for myself and pay attention to different things in the text. And I said, I don't think this is what, I've, what I'm reading uh, because most of the interpretations framed it as a story uh, of um, pageantry. This is a beauty pageant where girls are brought in and then one is chosen to replace the king. And I'm like, ah, no, this is not what's going on in the text. So I would say that my life experiences, including those conversations with sex workers, helped me to see that something different was happening in the text that had not yet um, been raised by interpreters and readers of the text. Mm, wonderful. Okay. So you've, you've got the, these experiences, these formative experiences, you've got these fantastic mentors who are helping you see new stories within texts that mean a lot to many people around the world. And then did you go into a PhD program after seminary? Like how did that process go for you? Yeah, I did. So at um, ITC, I realized that critical thinking was my niche, right? So that this is something that I wanted to do. I didn't know where, but um, I wanted to be able to teach and engage people around biblical text. So I applied to, maybe applied to maybe only two programs, but I got into the program that I wanted to get in, um, Drew University, and I studied with Dr. Kenneth Ngwa, um, who was an African scholar um, that affirmed a lot of my um, interests and perspectives as well. So it was, it was really a perfect fit. Right. Um, and he Fantastic. Was yeah. He was excited about that scholarship. Um, I love it. Well, and you, I know that you graduated just this past May at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to graduate with a PhD, this monumental accomplishment at the height of such a global um, emergency? Yeah, it was an interesting experience because I scheduled my defense. It had to be like a week before the global lockdown. I, I mean, I really missed the lockdown by a week before I, you know, in the, defending the dissertation. So I was very relieved that I scheduled it at the time that I scheduled it and defended in the midst of such chaos. And I was saddened a little bit by the process being different, but I celebrate it. It was an accomplishment, right? Um, and, and it gave me an opportunity to just slow down and discern my next steps. What would I, you know, want to do with the dissertor dissertation? Because these dissertations can take a life of their own, right? And they can yeah. do different things. So I'm discerning. I had opportunities to discern where I would go next. Wonderful. Well, before we dive in more specifically to some of the work that you've sent me that I've been looking at the last few days, I want to talk a little bit about sacred rights, um, the cohort that you're currently a part of that is focused on bringing public scholarship from you know higher education and expertise in like faculty and in scholarship into a more widespread uh, public awareness, which is something that I, doing this podcast, happen to care deeply about. And so all these interests and scholarship that you have accumulated the last several years finds you a member of this current 2020 Sacred Rights cohort. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about why you applied to the fellowship and what sorts of skills you feel you are developing as a member of the cohort. 
Sure. I applied to sacred rights because I wanted to develop skill sets to broaden my audience and to have the ability to tweak and present my scholarship to different audiences. Many scholars aren't limited to the academy. We have activist identities. Many of us are preachers. And so we, you know, have commitments and involvement in different institutions. Thus, we want our scholarship to be universal and accessible to as many communities as possible, especially if our scholarship is committed, is connected to our activism. Uh, so sacred rights helps us to position ourselves to speak on various issues across various platforms. Uh, it presents us opportunity to expand our work, to expand our research and communities of accountability. So I understand this as a work of um, expanding communities of accountabilities and conversational partners, as well as, you know, putting my research out there. So I would say that one of the um, benefits of being a sacred rights scholar is that it has emboldened me. That's <laughs> primarily, that's one of the um, best benefits is because I'm a, with, I'm, I'm a uh, reserve scholar, right? I like to write, put it out there um, on whatever platform, but I don't really engage a lot publicly. So it's emboldened me and it's given me some um, information and skill sets to, as I said, tweak this information for the appropriate audiences. Um, and I will say that I've taken advantage of more public scholarships since being in this training than I would have probably across five, four or five years because I'm just not, I've not been emboldened enough to take that step, you know, take that leap of faith. Um, and the interesting thing is that I only talk about my research with Esther in these platforms. So the content is the same, maybe a little more or a little less, but um, depending on the format, but the communities are being expanded. You know, others are engaging the work and gaining access to a different perspective. Wonderful. I love it. Um, and you have this fantastic dissertation and some content that you've been looking at. And your dissertation is called Trafficking Hadassah, an Africana reading of collective trauma, memory, and the identity in the book of Esther and the African diaspora. So it's a dialogical cultural study of sexual trafficking in the book of Esther and during the transatlantic slave trade. And so, you know, I want you to say a little bit more about what it was about the book of Esther that grabbed your attention and kept you so interested to take it all the way through a dissertation process? Sure. So we know that there are only two books in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible named after women. Um, and I've always been interested in the minoritized, marginalized subjects or persons in the Bible. Um, and Honestly, something just did not sit right with me about how the story was being told. I told you that, you know, there were, it was being framed as a story of a of beauty, of a beauty contest. And I just didn't feel that that particular interpretation was doing the story justice, that there were elements of the story that were left out, ignored. Um, and then, as I stated, having conversations with those sex workers let me know that it was more to the story than just young, pretty girls um, beating other girls out, you know, for a chance to become the replacement king. So I wanted to know whose voices weren't being heard, whose names weren't identified, and whose versions of the story that we'd never hear, right? So I shifted my focus to look at some of the minor characters, to listen to some of the silences and the silence characters in the book. And um, in doing that, some of for me, the minor characters, like the unnamed version girls, became major characters mm. because I shifted from an individualistic um, hermeneutic of focusing on Vashti versus Esther or Vashti and then Esther. But I focused on the collective of females and connected, for instance, Vashti's, uh, uh, excuse me, Vashti's experiences with Esther's and the other virgin girls' experiences. Wonderful. Well, you know, you have a term in the title as well called uh, it's collective trauma. And I'm curious if you can just describe to the audience what you mean by collective trauma. And then you can also feel free to include any examples that you feel are, you know, relevant or illuminating for an audience in the year 2021. 
Sure. Yeah, so trauma comes from the Greek word that means wound and refers to physical, emotional, or spiritual wounds that destructs and destabilizes um, both individuals and collectives. So when you're talking about individual trauma, it's trauma that impacts one you know, person, but collective trauma is when groups of persons such as families or social units, ethnic groups, communities, nations, all share or experience um, catastrophic events together. And these catastrophic events can be either naturally occurring, uh, like natural disasters or human initiated. Um, so some examples might be is um, experiences of displacement, exile, torture, military violence, terrorism, genocide, rape, um, ethnic cleansing. Those are just a few events that might constitute collective trauma. And these traumatic experiences uh, lead to immense disruptions in the group's consciousness and sense of co cohesiveness, um, their sense of safety. And um, the remembrance of these events are grounded in the identity formation of the groups impacted. Um, now, let me give also this shorter um, definition of collective trauma by Kai Erickson. He says, by collective trauma, I mean a blow to the basic tissues of social life that damages the bonds attaching people. So it, again, it destabilizes them and it impairs their prevailing sense of community. Mm -hmm. And some examples that I might offer, contemporary examples, yeah. um, more contemporary examples are, you know, colonization, diasporization, enslavement, and the rape of Africana peoples. Then you have the genocide and colonization of indigenous peoples. You have redlining, gentrification, voter suppression, um, medical abuse and exploitation, such as like the Tuskegee experiment mm -hmm. or what happened with Henrietta Lacks or Fannie Lou Hamer, right? Um, separating children from their families and um, one you know, popular issue is legislating on girls and women's reproductive rights, right? Mm. So all of these constitute collective trauma. Yeah. How do you see collective trauma related to your work within the book of Esther? Tell me about this. It's so like what I'm arguing is that in experiences of colonization and sexual trafficking constitute collective trauma. And I'm not saying that it's experienced solely by African girls, because the text refers to girls from ranging from um, taken from places from India to Ethiopia, right? But there's a large scope of geographical spaces in between that. And girls are taken from Persia as well. But my specific um, hermeneutical view is placing Africana life and culture and experience at the center of my reading. So that's why I'm focused on Africa, African girls in the text. Mm. So it sounds like there's room within your field of expertise and research for multiple scholars to look at this from multiple different uh, perspectives, right? For multiple different um, histories of groups of girls involved in these stories. It feels like there's room for like almost like a cohort within your expertise. Does that sound right? That is, I mean, it's exactly what I'm arguing and saying um, because, so we can look at the wider collective of females, right? But then you can look at that there's African females, that there are Persian females, that there are Indian, Indian, you know, females. But, and this kind of makes me jump a little ahead to intersectionality, which helps us to, fo to focus on the specificity of a certain, you know, specific person's identity and how that contributes to their oppression, right? So that intersectionality is showing us how race, gender, ethnicity, and class all contribute to these experiences of oppression. Um, but it also helps us to not conflate all of these different groups' experiences into one experience, right? Oh, I love it. Okay. So let's go a little bit into the text. Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, the Book of Esther is... Uh, you know, maybe something that a lot of people who come from a community that finds this story to be important, maybe they've overlooked it, maybe they haven't read it in a long time, maybe they've never read it at all. Uh, I'm curious if you can just tell me a little bit about the context and the time and place for the Book of Esther. What is life like in these stories and what should we know as like sort of like an on the surface level uh, understanding of the story? Sure. So um, scholars debate 
over the time, you know, that this book was written and produced. Um, some argue for earlier Persian period date, others uh, later Greco-Roman Roman period dating. Um, but we know that the setting is Persia, is post-exile, and that the Jews are colonized, right? Um, for me, the date is not a primary concern as I'm not making any claims about the historicity of Esther. Mm-hmm. I'm analyzing it as a story, right? And in its final form, whether factual or fiction, um, it depicts realities that draws parallel with um, experiences of contemporary Africana people. Um, and I would say, I love the question about time because one of the things that I point out about the book of Esther is we need to pay attention to time. Um, Sarojini Nadar, who is also a biblical scholar, um, South African scholar, points out that um, once I get into my argument about this being a story of sex trafficking, that um, we need to be attentive to time because if we're attentive to time, this trafficking enterprise takes place across a year, four years, so a year of um, preparation for sex, and then, you know, three three years of being exploited. So time is a key thing that we need to be, you know, attentive to, but not in terms of the exact dating that this, this happened, but how time functions in the narrative and contributes to exploitation and abuse. Mm, I love it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the title, uh, the beginning of the title specifically. You mentioned trafficking just now. So the beginning of your title is Trafficking Hadassah. Tell me about the title uh, and also the name as well. Sure. So I um, titled the book Trafficking Hadassah as a means to resist the framing of the story as a beauty pageant. I wanted it to be upfront that I understand this as a story of um, sexual trafficking. And along with framing this as a story um, of, of, of contest and pageantry, sometimes people kind of focus on the fun and humorous nature of that type of event. But for me, I'm resisting the, the framing of sex trafficking or of sexual abuse and exploitation as something fun or humorous. Um, so it takes on a more serious tone. And I'm also doing it to highlight Esther's Jewish name. Uh, Most people read over that Esther's Persian name is Esther, but her Jewish name is Hadassah. So we've suppressed her name, her, you know, um, Jewish name in the text in ways that are similar to how other aspects of her identity and the other girl's identity are suppressed. So I don't want to perpetuate that type of suppression, right? Because namelessness, facelessness, and invisibility and silence all contribute to and help undergird sex trafficking enterprises. So my title is intentional as it could also be understand as a contribution to the Say Her Name movement. And it at the same time spotlights that there are other marginalized and minoritized girls in the text whose names we'll never know. Mm. So attention to Adassa's name can illuminate that there are other countless girls in the text that have similar experiences, but are nameless. Thus, many of us who read the story and interpret it ignore their plights, right? We ignore their names. We can't say their names because we don't know them. Mm-hmm. So um, it's resistance to this type of narrative erasure that may be um, unintentional, but it definitely contributes to the abuse. Before we talk about the conditions uh, of the trafficking that you see in the story, there's another name that we should get out of the way and describe a little bit as well, and that's Vashti, who you already talked about a little bit. Who is Vashti, and why does Vashti matter within the context of this story? Yeah, so Vashti is introduced as you know the queen of Xerxes, and She's introduced with little to no background information. She rarely speaks. As a matter of fact, you only hear her voice through the voice of the narrator, um, which is another instance of narrative silencing. Um, She's deposed for resisting a sexualized gaze. So the king and his guests are all inebriated and he calls for her. She, you know, says no, she refuses to come and her punishment is you know, let's depose her because other women will see her resistance and be inspired by her actions. So, you know, we have to depose her. And it's legalized. All of all of this, you know, is legalized. So her punishment 
connects her to the virgin girls because her resistance is what leads the girls to being rallied in this. Her resistance in the first chapter is what leads the girls to being rallied in the second chapter. So this is why I'm arguing that sexual exploitation initiate is initiated in chapter one, actually, um, with this sexualized gaze of Vashti. And then it is intensified in chapter two with the tra- trafficking of the virgin girls. Mm, okay. So what happens to Vashti that sort of makes way for this, uh, this quote unquote pageantry, which is actually trafficking? What happens to Vashti to open up the story for the other girls to come in? So she, she is deposed as queen. So they no longer have a, the king no longer has a queen. So he needs another queen. Um, but there's conversations about a queen more better than Vashti, right? So what does that mean? Is it a queen that will um, be more beautiful? Because all of the girls and women are introduced in terms of, of their beauty, right? Mm-hmm. So are, are, is the king and the um, his advisor seeking another woman that will be um as beautiful as Vashti, or is it one that will actually um, be obedient and not resist, right, this patriarchal colonial regime? Um, and I understand it as they're they're trying to um, find another woman that will do what the male collective say do, right? Because there are conversations about her Vashti inspiring other women in her behaviors. Mm. So for me, it's about putting the female collective in their place. So the way to do that is to depose Vashti, which is again, contributing to narrative silencing because you never hear about Vashti again. She's, you know, she's not mentioned. She doesn't show up in the story again. Um, And then um, as a result of her actions, girls are gathered. So they're directly related to each other. It's cause and effect. Mm, you mentioned the word gather right there. I want to talk about the conditions of sex trafficking in the book of Esther. Tell me about what happens in the aftermath of Vashti being deposed that um, are, can, are, are exemplary of trafficking, human trafficking. Sure. So in my work, I outline three elements of trafficking and then um, those parties that are involved in the, in the enterprise. So in in trafficking, you have an act or a process, the way or means, and then the goals. And I interpret all of them as being detailed within the king's servant speech in chapter two, verses two through four. So if you apply these elements of trafficking to the text, first, by imperial and patriarchal degree, the virgins are sought are to be sought out and transported to the king's palace. So that's the act and process, right? Then once the process is suggested by the servants and approved by the king, the tactics or the means are carried out by the commissioners. And then young girls are gathered by the commissioners and brought to the king, which is a strategy of disempowerment, you know, and it's for the purposes of sexual exploitation, which is the goal. So those are the three elements of trafficking. And the parties are um, King Xerxes is the perpetrator. So he's the one who sexually exploits the victim. Um, the servants play the part of the vendors. So they extend the services in the capital that makes sexual trafficking possible. So those um, the servants were the ones they gather the, the, the girls. And then um, the officers in the provinces of the kings are the facilitators. They actually go and expedite the victimization process. And finally, the victims um, are the girls who are brought into the king's harem. So you can see that there's a whole enterprise set up and that the king doesn't operate on his own, that he has his um, servants and his officers all participating in this sex trafficking ring and ensuring that he's able to exploit the victims. Mm, There can be varying levels of violence too underneath the surface of a a word which seems so uh, whitewashed, like gather, right? Like you can go and like have a carriage go up and down a street and you can essentially just grab girls off of the street or the road in a village and just put them and take them away, right? Right. So that's what was so key for me in my interpretation to pay attention to the narrator's voice and to, you know, pay attention to whether this is active or passive voice or whether or not these verbs are, the verbs are all in the past tense. So they are being gathered and they are being taken, right? 
Um, so these are all past tense. These girls are not exercising their wills to go. They are some being acted upon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Earlier you said a word, which I think that we should return to and revisit, and that's the term of intersectionality. And in your work, you write about reading the book of Esther with an intersectional lens. And I'm curious if you can just say what that means and you know, what dimensions of reading an ancient story like Esther, what dimensions are opened by reading something purposefully from an intersectional lens? Yeah, so intersectionality is a um, framework that was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, and she cites Black women's race, gender, and class as um, contributing to their disadvantage and discrimination, which she argues leads to harsher consequences. So in short, um, intersectionality is discarding single axis frameworks um, that views one aspect of an individual's identity, such as gender, as the sole contributor to oppression. Um, this distorts the multidimensionality of often um, racialized women's experiences. And leads to the type of theoretical and methodological and practical erasure that I've been pointing out, you know, in my scholarship. So Crenshaw um, asserts that a framework of intersectionality enables us to see and understand the multiple markers of difference, which might include gender, race, ethnicity, um, class, age, ability, as mutually constitutive and contributing to personal and social oppression and privileges. Um, so in applying intersectionality to the text enable, enables us to see that the girls are trafficked and exploited um, because they are one versions, females, um, colonized, minoritized, they have lower class standings, they have national identities and embody certain ethnic identities that all contribute to that experience of, of, of oppression, right? Mm. Um, so intersectionality takes into account like the roles of racism, sexism, classism, nationalism, and how they intersect in the treatment and exploitation of Vashti and the Virgin Girls throughout those first couple of chapters of um, Esther. Mm. So if, if intersectionality doesn't exist, say this lens doesn't exist, right? What are we missing from biblical studies like for the last like, you know, couple hundred years? Yeah, so I, I think as as I stated, like it it causes us to overlook different markers of of difference that contributes to oppression. Um, mm. So it's like a way that we can, you know, do better in the future by making these texts like we unpacking the the messages within them that we're maybe overlooking. Does that make sense? Yeah, so not only unpacking the messages, but being more attentive to details that matter, that mm. impact our interpretation of the text. Because honestly, most of us, when we read the book of Esther, we focus on the Jews. We focus on Esther, right? And her um, ascension to this position of queen. We're not taught to pay attention to India and Ethiopia and what that might signify in the text, right? Mm. Um, we're not really some of us are taught to kind of pay attention to the gender dynamic at the book's opening, the females versus the males, but we're not taught to look at the females as a collective. In my um, hearing and, you know, understanding of the text as I was in church and in undergrad and when I went to seminary, it was almost always this pitting of Vashti and Esther mm. like Vashti was not the type of woman that you want to model because she talked back and then she got deposed and so she really did not um make a difference in terms of dismantling patriarchy dismantling you know dismantling these oppressive systems but Esther was a great you know example of a leader but I kind of take a step back and say let's not pit these women against each other mm. let's read them as a collective and see how Esther could not have done what she did unless she had a Vashti, right? So they were kind of like tag teaming, working together. Amazing. Right? Awesome. Um, but it also helps you to look at the identities of Vashti, the identities of Esther, and not conflate them, right? So these are not all Jews that are 
virgin girls brought here, that there are different identities represented or depicted in the text and that we have to be attentive to these differences. Mm, I love it. Okay, so you have another piece of scholarship out, which um, is, I I think it's probably adapted from your dissertation um, for such a time as this, hashtag us too, representations of sexual trafficking, collective trauma and horror in the book of Esther. So is this adapted from the same research that you did for your dissertation? Yes. Excellent. Um, There is a a term in that title which really jumped out at me and is jumping out at me as I'm reading the article too, and that's biblical horror. Can you tell me a little bit about this term? Because it's so captivating. Yes. So it's not a developed genre, but in my analysis of um, the book of Esther, I am looking at how genre impacts what we see in the text, right? So if we read this text as um, humorous, we focus on how, well, in in the readings that I've seen, we tend to focus on how towards the end of the book, the Jews' plight is overturned and they're able to kill off their enemy. So haha, it's funny, it's laughable Mm. that, you know, the thing that you were going to do to me, we're now doing to you. So it's humorous. They're making fun of the empire. They're making fun of the empire's failure to kill them. But what I'm saying is because we're reading it through the lens of of humor and paying attention to the Jews and their plight, we've read over, completely read over what the girls in the text experienced and have not even addressed that sex trafficking is taking place. So that particular genre kind of focused our attention on the humorous aspects of the narrative, but helped it kind of forces us to ignore the what should be you know considered serious so i'm saying if we kind of look at the different genres that have been applied to the book of esther is there a more appropriate genre and as i'm reading scholars such as tina pippen amy kalmanowski and rihanna graybill like they're interpreting biblical text through the genre of horror so looking at horror films and kind of apply some of those frameworks to be a biblical narrative. Um, and I feel that by reading Esther through the lens of horror, we're made more aware. It, it's just in your face, the social justices and the violations against these women are just more in your face. It's um, There's a focus on like how female bodies are framed as abject bodies and that they're wretched, right? So, and that they're interchangeable. So if I don't want Vashti, I can just get rid of her and substitute her for Esther or these other girls. So the wretchedness, you know, the interchangeability, presenting these female bodies as expendable, as exploitable. And there's more of a focus on these um, bodies being subjected to repeated and outrageous, gruesome violence. So for me, biblical horror just puts this um, framework of sex trafficking right in your face. You can't ignore it. And it's it's a more serious tone. Yeah. And like the details, it's like, it's like terror. It's like a, a tone of terror inflicted upon specific groups of people based on luck of the draw of who you are when you are born that have nothing to do with choices that are made. It's just like, this is now done to you based on something that you have no control over. So a term in your article that also caught my eye is polyvocal Africana biblical interpretation. And I want to know what that means as well, because it's brand new to me. I've never talked about it on the show before. So polyvocality is a literary device that is characterized by multiple and varied voices and perspectives. So attention to textual polyvocality has the ability to deepen and expand and problematize the single access gender analysis that most of the biblical scholars and traditional biblical scholarships have um, engaged in. Um, It encourages diverse readings and interpretations of the text instead of uh, rather than a preferred dominant interpretation. So this kind of pushes back against dominant interpretations, right? And it um, values and validates other experiences and voices in the interpretive process. But it also enables readers and interpreters to engage the voices and experience of the muted, of the frequently overlooked and the ignored characters, namely the African African girls within the book of Esther. And it creates the space to um, facilitate conversations with other biblical scholars that either missed or ignored these critical elements, cues and references that identifies the type of intersectional oppression that I'm trying to help people see. Mm. These stories 
of these these girls that you're that you're telling um you know you talk about the life stories of africana girls in the text as quote sacred texts and i'm wondering if you can talk to me more about this because whenever we think about the the girls that you're writing about in from the Bible, from the Hebrew Bible, they're not the ones that are often described in like large scale biblical discourse over the last many years as the sacred stories. Right. Mm -hmm. But that, it seems like that's how you're framing them. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I tend to see how my scholarship draws parallels with contemporary social justice movements. And I think I've already cited, say her name, but um, you know, Black Lives Matter, all of these different social movements um, can be integrated in, you know, or my work can be integrated into those movements because yes, Black and Africana women lives matter. Their experiences matter. Our stories are valid. They can and do shed light on humanity's interaction with the divine and with other living beings. So our lives and our bodies are sacred. They house um, pain and lessons that can enable readers and interpreters uh, to acknowledge and address social and cultural complexities that arise from living in societies that are marked by like colonialism and patriarchy. Um, and I feel that when readers can recognize and understand intersectional oppression, they can develop empathy for those who are deeply impacted by these living conditions. Um, and they might be inspired to use their own agency, their privilege and their power to transform the systems and structures in which persons find themselves embedded. Mm. You know, um, something else that really um, has me thinking is like the lessons that uh, Vashti and Esther may teach to us today. Um, you write about like, you know, Vashti's uh, um, responses, it, which got her her banished or deposed, essentially. And it almost seems like an like acts of rebellion, right? Does that does that resonate? Yeah, so I it is an act of rebellion against this um, patriarchy and this male dominance, right? Um, the social hierarchy, uh, gender hierarchy, there, there's resistance to that. And a lot of people, um, scholars frame Esther's resistance as passive and question her agency. But again, if you look at the collective, if you kind of take a step back and look at collaboration, like, I think Esther knows her limitations as a female, as, you know, a Jew, as someone whose family can't come up against the empire. So she uses her resources to collaborate with the eunuchs, to collaborate with her um, guardian Mordecai outside, right? So she's resistant. It's just not as brash as Vashti's resistance, which might be why she's able to, you know, kind of have the success that she has, um, but both are resistant. And I think mm. we can learn from kind of looking at both of them. Have you, have, you, um, have you had any conversations with any of your own students or young women in the world uh, that have had deep conversations about the stories within Esther? Has there been any like major takeaways or epiphanies that you've seen young women have after reading these texts with a, you know, this intersectional lens? Have you seen any like breakthroughs about young people's thinking whenever thinking about these ancient stories? Sure. I think one of the common response responses is that I feel that I'm represented in this story. Mm. I mean, yes, the conditions are horrific. Um, but I can read myself into this story and I can voice, you know, my challenges with the story and with its treatment of Africana women. But I can also make connections to historical instances of Africana women being, you know, sexually exploited, mistreated, um, exposed to violence. And it gives me a resource and it gives me an ally to resist this type of treatment of, of Africana women. Um, it, I think one of the things that we have to do is acknowledge the role that religion and sacred texts play in creating and um, maintaining hierarchies of power and their mm -hmm. impact on the identities of readers. And I think that's what I wanted to talk about with the horror. Horror allows us to consider readers' response. 
So when I engage a horrific story, it elicits some type of response from me, right? Um, I feel what these persons in the text experience, especially if I've gone through a similar experience. So it elicits some type of response. And often those are responses that cause us to break down, you know, it's another, it's, it's vicarious traumatization. So being traumatized through the reading this story. So we can't just ignore these horrific elements in the story because it's not just a story that doesn't have any impact on our, that only has an impact on our identity, but it has bearings on how we navigate through life and how we respond to stress and trauma, right? Yeah. There's so much happening when we read and engage these stories. Yeah. And like uh, another thing that's really jumping out at me right now is the contemporary lessons that can be found by talking deeply about the sexual competition that these girls are forced to endure within the text and then looking at ways that those things still happen today. If there's any forms of sexual competition happening now and what like norms in society we can critique and question that we, you know, have inherited for ourselves today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think for me, I would kind of shy away from drawing parallel with sexual competitions because again for me that type of framing suggests that the girls went with the intention to compete you know mm -hmm. that they're they exercise the will to be there and I'm just trying to dispel that framing because that's not what's happening in the text right mm -hmm. um but it is an important conversation to have I try not to have it with what I'm you know, kind of laying out because I don't want anyone to suggest that I'm suggesting that it was a competition because it's not. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. I appreciate the clarification there as well. Um, you know, do you think these examples are, you know, given their just due in like modern church services? Like, do you see any denominations talk having these conversations or is this something that we're, that like religious groups still need to do better at? We definitely need to do better. I mean, I share these, um, my interpretation with different teachers and preachers, and they might respond to me and say, well, I never thought about those aspects of the text, or I've never taught it in that way. And one of the um, implications of this interpretation is, like, I write about Aretha Franklin and Juanita Bynum, who popularized a familiar song um, entitled One Night with the King. And it's one night with the king can change everything. And it's kind of like glamorizing this process of spending, you know, one night with the king. Um, but in doing so, they inadvertently normalize and promote sexual trafficking um, and sexual violence against women because they ignore like these exploitative and abusive aspects of the, nor the narrative. So the lyricist frames one night with the king as an opportunity for like economic and perhaps political advancement stating like it grants females access to upward mobility or enables her dreams to become realities and it changes the course of her life forever in a seemingly positive way but really one night with the king means each girl is being brought in to have sex with the king to see who he likes best because that's how he's determining how to you know choose his new king and queen and in addition in many in like in many traditions, interpreters of the song and the biblical narrative conflate God with the king. So in doing so, we are inadvertently framing the deity as a hostile and abusive male, you know, imperial agent that sexually exploits victims, um, female victims. And in my conversations with a lot of persons that have been trafficked or sexual abused, they can um they reflect on how pimps often conflate biblical language, um, such as like, I am your God or I am your protector. Um, so the pimp frames themselves as they understood God, how they understood God according to the biblical narrative. Um, and so as a result, those that have been abused aren't able to distinguish between God and the pimp, right? Mm. Um, and they wow. don't trust religious leaders because they understand, I mean, another dynamic is they, they might not trust religious leaders because they may not understand them as um, 
because they might understand them as recruiting them for some unhealthy practices and exploitative systems with that inflation, right? Oh oh my goodness. Your your work is just so... um... It's so powerful and so important and reinjects so many amazing questions onto these stories, which have been around for, for generations. These are emotionally heavy topics for you. Do you like what researching and working with such heavy stories? Like, does this impact your, um, you know, your own health, like your own emotional health? Like, how does it feel to be a scholar who works with such challenging content? Yeah, it definitely impacts my health and well-being. When I was writing my dissertation, I had to be, you know, ensure that I was having um, sessions, booking sessions with the therapist, and just taking time to step away from the project, kind of do some self-work, and then come back and and you know engage in the scholarship. But it's necessary work, right? Um, yeah. And we can't ignore these realities. So in as much as it challenges me, it's very rewarding to be able to kind of highlight these issues so that we can galvanize others towards dismantling these types of exploitative systems that continue to perpetuate the abuse. Mm. Um, So I kind of balance the, it's exhausting, it weighs heavy on me with the perceived rewards of, galvanizing others to help dismantle these systems. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you do it because it's uh, pushing my own thinking with regards to biblical studies as well, for sure. And, you know, just a, a, a dorky side note, um, in the article, I noticed that you use the NRSV as your biblical translation. And, you know, as a teacher for high school students, I'm always like hemming and hawing about which translation I should use uh, for, for classwork. Um, why do you use the NRSV? Uh, I'm just curious. Yeah. So um, when I was in seminary, it was required for us to use the NRSV because um, our professor said that it was more faithful to the interpretation of the original text. So um, that was helpful for me, right, to have a translation that's more faithful to the original text, but I also engage in my own word studies and do my own interpretations, because one word can have five or six meanings, right, and so if you do your own interpretation, you can do your own um, investigation of what that word might mean, you might have four or five different interpretations of one verse, Um, so it's it's to... um, use a version that is closer to the Hebrew text um, and, and also have persons reading the same version. Because if you read a different version, it might translate a term in a way that obscures the sex and sexuality, right? So sometimes translations um, contribute to the euphemization of certain actions in the text. So for me, I use it because it, 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 really does elucidate the force movements of the girls and the force um, actions of the empire. You imagine a biblical translation which went through and instead of a word like gather, um, replace it with a word like kidnapped. Do you know what I mean? Like, but do that throughout the entire Bible and in a way that would, you know, graphically bring a more in your face style of writing to the reader. Can you imagine such a text? Yeah. I think it would be helpful. <laughs> I think it would be really helpful, but I also think that there would be some type of traumatic response to it, right? Because we've not been taught that the activities that you know are taking place are framed as such, <laughs> right? I, I would read that. I would read that translation. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine. Wow. Well, Dr. Dunbar, I, I've kept you for an hour here, and this has been such a, a wonderful and illuminating conversation with me. I'm deeply enjoying your work. I am really appreciating the scholarship that you are putting out. I'm so glad that you're a part of Sacred Rights and are doing this work and bringing these conversations to a wider audience. Um, for anybody out there who's listening who may want to follow what you do, do you have anywhere that um, people can follow you if they want to know a little bit more about your work in the future? Yeah, so right now I'm only on Facebook, so follow me at Erica Dunbar. Um, I'm working on a site, so I'll try to collect all of, you know, my work and 
engage a little bit more on other platforms. But right now you can reach me there or you can reach me via email at edumbar at painseminary.edu. Excellent. And I know that you can also find your work at uh, sacred-rights.org as well. I know you have a profile there as well for anybody who may want to check that out. Well, Dr. Erica Dunbar, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful to you for your time and energy and telling me all about your work and your research. It's so deeply appreciated. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. Support for this episode of Classical Ideas was provided by Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation project. Explore the work of Sacred Rights at sacred-rights.org.